Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Our passage for this morning for the second week in a row is Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3. And let's begin by reading the passage together. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3. The Apostle Paul writes this. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The Thirty Years' War was one of the bloodiest conflicts of all time. Begun in 1618, it raged, as the name implies, for 30 years, until 1648. Before it was all said and done, it involved nearly every European power, and between the ravages of war, disease, and famine, it's estimated to have killed somewhere around 8 million people. Just for some perspective, the bloodiest conflict in American history was the Civil War, and it pales by comparison. About 750,000 Americans died in the Civil War, or just under 2.5% of the population. The Thirty Years' War claimed about ten times that amount in a single generation. German states lost about a third of their citizens in that span, both through death and emigration, including half of all its men. The Czech population in Europe suffered similar losses. It was really just an incredibly devastating war, one that's, I think, hard for us to fathom today. And do you know what the cause of it was? You know, it started it all. Of course, it's never easy to distill a war of that size and duration down to a single cause. But at the same time, do you know what the root issue was? Do you know what started it? The answer, at least ostensibly, is religion. It was a conflict between Protestants and Catholics, essentially over religious freedom. And this wasn't even the only religious conflict going on in Europe around that time. The fact of the matter is that the political fallout of the Protestant Reformation led to a number of different uh, religiously oriented conflicts during that period of, human, uh, of European history. The English Civil Wars, for instance, which largely had to do with religious freedom and which were fought during the latter half of the Thirty Years' War, they claimed about half a million lives. There was also the Eighty Years' War, which started 50 years before the Thirty Years' War and ended, as you do the math, right, about the same time. That was a religious and political conflict between Spanish Catholics and Dutch Protestants. And about three-quarters of a million people died during the duration of that conflict. About a hundred years before that, the German Peasants' War, which was part economic, part Protestant-Catholic conflict, it ended with about 100,000 dead. That would be followed less than 50 years later with the French Wars of Religion, another Protestant-Catholic conflict, which killed some three million French citizens. Combined, upwards of over 13 million Europeans died in religiously oriented conflicts between Protestants and Catholics 
in the 150 years following Luther's 95 Theses. The effects of these series of conflicts was monumental. In fact, we're still feeling them today. You see, the era that followed this phase of religious turmoil in Western civilization was a period of philosophy we now call the Age of Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, in case you weren't aware, is a significant development in Western civilization because during the Enlightenment, reason replaced revelation as the Westerner's arbiter of truth. You even see this come out in the fact that the Enlightenment is alternately known as the Age of Reason. This shift from, from revelation to reason as ultimate authority was a development that had several different roots historically. It began during the Renaissance's exaltation of man, for instance, and it even continued with the Protestant Reformation itself with the doctrine of sola scriptura and the priesthood of all believers. After all, what the Reformation said was that no longer was the Pope the interpreter of Scripture, rather the common Christian in communion with his fellow saints, they became the interpreters of Scripture. So even before the Reformation, there was this dynamic gradually emerging where the individual had more and more say over what was true and what was not true. But even still, up until the Enlightenment, Christian revelation still held sway. There may have been disputes about what that revelation was and who had the authority to interpret it, whether it came in the form of an inspired canon alone or whether it came through canon and tradition and an inspired interpreter. But all the same, everyone basically agreed. Truth was something that was revealed to us. It was something told to us by God. And the role our reason played, if it played any role at all, was simply to interpret and apply that truth. During the Enlightenment, that dynamic finally flipped. Reason became king, and revelation became its subject. Reason became the final arbiter of truth, and revelation had to submit to its conclusions. In other words, all these discussions that you may have heard about from time to time, for instance, about whether the Scripture is inspired by God, which really started in earnest in the 18th and 19th centuries, or this mindset which attempts to discredit the Bible based off of its supposed errors, all of that finds root in the Enlightenment. And it would appear that the timing of that development was not coincidental. And neither was it driven purely by intellectual concerns. Rather, historians argue that one of the key influences that led to the birth of the Enlightenment was this extended period of religious conflict in the 16th and 17th centuries. Essentially, after these wars between the Protestants and the Catholics ended, with all these millions of people dead, Europe looked around at each other and said, we have to find some way to get along. We have to find some way to agree with each other. And since it seems like we can't use revelation to do that anymore, since we can't seem to agree on the nature of revelation, then perhaps we need to find a new source. Perhaps we need to turn to some new arbiter to mediate our disputes with each other. And that source was reason. In sum, what Europe, what Europe came... What happened is that Europe came to the conclusion that they could no longer use spiritual truth as a source of authority. 
since by its nature, spiritual truth can't be proven entirely. It's unseen. It's immaterial. So they decided instead to turn to a source of authority that could be considered objective, one that was testable and provable, meaning one they could see with their eyes and touch with their hands. And in this way, secularism was born. And rationalism. And philosophical materialism, which is this belief that the only thing that's real is the physical realm. Even deism, which seems to have been an extremely appealing concept among the founding fathers, if you stop and think about it, it's just a defensive response to these ongoing conflicts. After all, these conflicts all stemmed out of the belief that you have a very personal God with a very distinct personality who wants to be engaged with his creation and worshipped in very specific ways. So how do you try to maintain a belief in God while avoiding these types of conflicts? You generalize him. You take away his personality. You begin to speak of him as a force. You say he created the universe, but he walked away from it and doesn't engage in it anymore at a personal level. Those are the basic tenets of deism. Point being, many of the hallmarks and much of the legacy of the Enlightenment were the results of practical concerns just as much as they were intellectual ones. And it's hard to overestimate the impact these developments had in shaping the world we live in today. Some of the change has been good. For example, the, the suffering inflicted by these ongoing conflicts, not only in Europe, but on a smaller scale in the Americas as well, it helped to ignite the Founding Fathers' passion for religious freedom. They learned the lesson. The only way you can hold a nation of such diverse religious beliefs together and prevent it from plunging into a constant state of civil war was if you actually erected a barrier of separation between the church and state, thus protecting the church from the state's interference. That's certainly something you and I can appreciate based on the principles of 1 Timothy 2. American Christians have enjoyed an unprecedented period of peace and tranquility since then. However, it could be argued that a lot of the change has not been good. After all, far from giving us more light, as the name implies, the philosophical failings of the Enlightenment have only served to plunge Western civilization into an increase of spiritual and even intellectual darkness. That's because not all types of knowledge can be explained by mathematical theorems and data. Man is both a physical and spiritual being, but you can't answer the spiritual questions that we all struggle with with observation and reason alone. And as Western society has tried to wrestle with these questions in the absence of revelation, it has resulted not only in a highly erratic religious pluralism, but in moral relativism as well. Quite simply, once revelation is taken away, there's nothing that any of us can point to to say that, quote-unquote, our way of doing things is right or wrong. And so everyone is left to do what is right or wrong in his own eyes. As Christians, we can see the effects all around us, but sadly, even within the church, I think we struggle to understand the significance of it all. And that's because we've not been untouched by these conflicts. It scarred us as well. For instance, back a few weeks ago, we talked about gospel downgrade, and as we talked about that, uh, I discussed the slide of New England congregations from Puritanism 
into Unitarianism. That descent was taking place in the century and a half following the Thirty Years' War, as the Enlightenment was taking root. And as I mentioned during our discussion of the downgrade, it occurred as church leaders began to value unity over truth. Basically, they got tired of fighting with each other, and so they agreed to cease fighting and to stop asking tough questions, and the result was that outright heresy was eventually able to take root even in their higher institutions. Harvard University, for instance, was founded by Puritans for the express purpose of religious training in 1636. And it would elect a Unitarian to the chair of its divinity school by 1805. They essentially did the same thing the deists did, and they watered God down enough, generalized him enough, that there wasn't anything worth fighting over anymore. This is something the church still struggles with today. The fact is, if we're being honest, right, the average Baptist doesn't know what separates him or her from the Christian church, or a Presbyterian, or a Methodist. People will transfer seamlessly from one denomination to another. Denominal, denominational distinctions have been practically eliminated. Even if they do exist somewhere in some obscure document tucked away in a dusting filing cabinet in the church office. And the reason is because churches, most churches, don't really teach doctrine anymore. They don't discuss the details of the Christian faith with any depth. And then instead, they keep things short and sweet and superficial. Reason being, doctrine divides. That's the general sentiment among Christians today. Why would we ever get into a discussion about, say, the relationship between regeneration and faith and which precedes the other in salvation, since all that does is divide each other? And if you're trying to grow the biggest church possible, you certainly don't want to do that. You need mass appeal. So instead of getting specific, you keep it general so as not to offend anyone. And the outcome is that many in the church today are practical Unitarians. They can't explain to you why belief in Christ alone is essential to salvation. Many can't even articulate the gospel, what the gospel is if you were to ask them that question point blank. Basically, the exclusivity of Christ in salvation eludes them. To paraphrase Amos 8.11, there is a famine in the land for the words of God. And so now, when the church encounters this religious pluralism or moral relativism in our culture, the average Christian is unable to distinguish what the big deal is. Think about this. In 1689... Baptists were willing to confess by common creed that they believed the Pope to be the Antichrist. Today it's politically incorrect to imply, even among evangelicals, that a Catholic may not be saved. And you certainly don't say it from the pulpit. Why be so negative, right? Why focus on what separates us? Why not focus instead on what we have in common? Friends, this is the outcome of religious conflict. Not to oversimplify, but you go back to the 95 Theses. Luther says, let's discuss whether some of these points are biblical. Uh, the Pope and his henchmen say, no, it's not up for discussion, recant. And now 500 years later, the church is still reeling from the consequences. 
I like the way Thomas Manton said it. Thomas Manton was a Puritan clergyman who ministered in England during the height of the English Civil Wars, which took half a million people. Not only that, but he even served as one of the personal chaplains of Oliver Cromwell himself. Oliver Cromwell reigned as England's Lord Protector for a period of time. He wasn't king in England. He was the Protestant's replacement for the king until he died, and then the monarchy was reinstalled. Thomas Manton was his, chapl his chaplain, so he knew a thing or two about the consequences of religious conflict. And regarding division, he once said this, Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. Let me say that one more time. Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. That's quite prescient, is it not? After all, what's one of the most common objections that atheists still bring up today? They say that religion is not a net plus in our society, and then they point back to the types of conflicts that I've been describing to you this morning, and of all the people that died as martyrs, in addition to that, which, which we haven't even discussed today, we haven't even talked about the number of Protestants and Catholics killed by religious persecution in the same time period, they'll point to all that, and they'll say that religion has been the cause of more wars and conflict among men than anything else. You have to wonder, how different would the world be today if the Pope had listened to that monk from Wittenberg, what would Christendom be like if the Catholic Church had realized the truth of what Martin Luther was saying and actually reformed? Once again, our passage for this morning is Philippians 4, 2 through 3. And in this passage, Paul tells two leading women in Philippi to agree with one another. And if you're wondering why I'm taking the time to give you this extended history lesson today, it's because I'm trying to illustrate for you in detail the earth-shaking consequences of division in the church. I want you to understand that division in the church is not a little issue. It's an incredibly urgent one. In fact... That was the central takeaway from our discussion of this passage last week. We talked about the attitudes that are associated with gospel-minded agreement, and we saw that what Paul shows us by example in this passage is that gospel-minded agreement is associated with an attitude of trust, an attitude of unity, and an attitude of urgency. And those are all interrelated. It's because Paul trusts these two women, given their history, that he doesn't automatically assume unbelief or even sin on their part. They are not like the enemies of the cross that we encountered back at the end of chapter 3. Instead, they're still united in Christ together, along with Paul and the rest of the Philippians. And this means that this disagreement that's occurred between the two of them is really quite urgent. Again, Paul doesn't just ask them to agree. He doesn't merely request that they agree. He entreats them. He beseeches them to agree. We spent some time discussing why Paul would consider this such an urgent issue. 
And I said that, first of all, it's urgent because this disagreement is hindering the church's direct proclamation of the gospel. This is the more evident of these two reasons from this passage. Paul refers to these women as, quote, fellow workers who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. This seems to be what Paul is thinking of when he gets news of their disagreement. He's thinking about how this disagreement is going to disrupt the team how it's going to make the church's collective efforts at sharing Christ inefficient. Less evident, but no less important, is the second reason why this is such an urgent issue. And that's the fact that this disagreement is going to hinder the church's indirect proclamation of the gospel. That's what we've been talking about so far this morning. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And this comes out more from the context of Philippians, where Paul speaks at the end of chapter 1 of wanting to hear that the Philippians are living lives worthy of the gospel, which happens as they respond to their suffering for Christ by standing firm in one spirit, quote, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul very much understood what history has shown us since that time. And that's that division in the church undermines the gospel message. And he was very much concerned that this is what was taking place at Philippi. And apparently with Yodia and Syntyche specifically, after all, he takes the time to call them out by name and urge them specifically to agree with each other. So we can see why this is such an urgent issue. The question we have to answer now is, how do we find unity? So we can see that unity is important to the body of Christ, and we've seen something of the attitude that motivates and accompanies unity. The question now is, how do we get there? How do we become unified? And that's what we're going to discover now with the action and the apparatus of gospel-minded unity from the rest of this passage. Once again, that's the action and the apparatus of gospel-minded unity. This morning we're going to discuss the action, and that's to agree, but to agree specifically in the Lord. Once again, the action we must take to avoid divisions is to agree, but to agree most specifically in the Lord. Of course, we find this in verse 2 where Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, or more literally, to think the same in the Lord. These last three words in the English, five words in the Greek, this phrase, in the Lord, I tell you, they are so, so important in describing for us how we are to find agreement with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think really on a couple of different levels. First, this phrase describes for us the path to unity. Once again, this phrase shows us the pathway, or perhaps you might even say the location of Christian unity, and that's in the Lord. We have find agreement in Christ Jesus. A few moments ago, I spoke about the failings of the Enlightenment and how it ultimately deteriorated into religious pluralism and moral relativism. Those failings were rooted in more than just the fact that man is not just a body. 
that there's something real beyond what we can simply see with our eyes and touch with our hands. Those failings are rooted in the weakness of logic itself. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, one of the preeminent figures of the Enlightenment, realized this fact. I remember reading uh, from his autobiography a number of years ago and how he recounts in this book the moment he realized the limitations of human reason. He was traveling from Boston to Philadelphia as a young man when some of the passengers on the boat caught a great deal of cod and they began to fry and eat them. Franklin had recently read a book discussing the importance of moderation and living a long and happy life and in the process he had actually decided to become a vegetarian. Eating a fish in the eyes of Franklin was a kind of murder since in his words none of them had or ever could do us any injury that might justify a slaughter. Franklin notes all this seemed very reasonable. And then he continues, But I had formerly been a great lover of fish, and when this came hot out of the frying pan, it smelt admirably well. I balanced some time between principle and inclination, till I recollected that when the fish were opened, I saw smaller fish taken out of their stomachs. And then I thought, if you eat one another, I don't see why we mayn't eat you. So I dined upon cod very heartily and continued to eat with other people, returning only now and then occasionally to vegetable diet. Franklin then concludes in his typical sarcasm and self-effacing wit, he says, So convenient a thing it is to be a reasonable creature, since it enables one to make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. This is the problem with reason, isn't it? You can use it to justify just about anything. That's because reason, while a very useful tool in properly arranging facts, it is not able by itself to discern foundational truths. It can tell you if A is true and B is true, then C is also true. But it's that if A and B part, that's the sticking point. Is A and B true? And if so, how can we know? Reason can't always establish that point by itself. Now, take the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For example, if the resurrection did happen, then reason would probably lead us to conclude that he's the Son of God, right? After all, he said he was the Son of God. He said his resurrection would prove that point, and then he rose from the dead. You add that to the fact that no one else has ever been raised unto eternal life, and if you're just being logical, then you have to conclude that Jesus is the Son of God. The question is, did he rise from the dead? If you're going by the criteria that's typically used to establish the reliability of a historical event, then from a purely objective perspective, we have pretty good reason to believe that Christ's resurrection happened. It would actually take some pretty extraordinary circumstances for it to not have happened. But still, you have all kinds of incredible theories out there trying to explain how it didn't happen in spite of the historical evidence. So where is that coming from? Well, for many, it's coming from the fact that they've already concluded from another set of evidence that Jesus is not the Son of God, and so he couldn't have risen from the dead. Maybe they'd point to the supposed contradictions in the Bible, or maybe they'd point to the general absence of miracles today, or maybe they'd point to the general character of his church, you know, the one that's supposedly been the source of all these wars and conflicts over the years. There are any number of reasons they could point to, 
But the point is that they believe another type of evidence is more convincing. And so this leads them to discredit the evidence that points to the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. You see, it's really about your starting points. Your starting points determine your conclusions. You see this play out in Matthew 12 when Jesus cast a demon out of a blind and mute man. The evidence about Jesus was so obvious at that point that even the crowds began to ask themselves, can this be the son of David? The problem was that the Pharisees had already determined that Jesus cannot be the son of David. And so what did they say? They said it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The problem wasn't the quality of the evidence. Everyone could plainly recognize a miracle had been performed. To some degree, it wasn't even their logic entirely, though Jesus does go on to demonstrate the inconsistency of their claims. The main problem, however, was their starting point. They didn't want Jesus to be the son of David, and so because they didn't want him to be the son of David, they concluded he couldn't be the son of David, and this meant that logically, the power had to be coming from someone other than God, and that someone was Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. This is one of the fundamental problems with using one's reason as the final arbiter of truth. As Franklin so astutely pointed out, our reason itself is often subject to its own desires. Essentially, we want certain things to be true or untrue, and so in order to protect that conclusion, we'll begin with a starting point that makes it reasonable. Basically, the election is fixed. It's rigged. There's the appearance of an open-minded and democratic process, but the fact is the results have been predetermined. And it's all a farce designed to make it look like we're after the truth and appease our conscience as we seek out our idols. In other words, our conclusions are often biased from the beginning, and we'll actually use our reason to distort the truth instead of find it. The Bible actually speaks about this. Romans 1, it says that men suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They use their minds not to discover the truth, but to suppress it. And that's not the only problem with reason. Even if you take sin out of it, even removing our idolatry, the fact still remains that we are all finite, meaning that if we all have to rely on our own wits to get us by, then none of us can say with any certainty that our starting points are right. Society has even conceded this point. Even, even taking our sin nature out of it, they began to see that we're all finite beings with a, with a very limited perspective on reality. And so because of this, our conclusions would always be biased. And what this realization led to was first a kind of relativism wherein we all individually decide what's true for us. And then finally, society arrived at a period that we now call, call postmodernism, which is not so much a kind of relativism as people claim it is, but more, I know this is kind of a, a this is a mouthful, but more of a, an epistemological agnosticism meaning postmoderns don't say that truth is relative. They just say that although there may be such a thing as truth, we can't really know it. All we can do is offer our best guesses, our perspectives on reality. Western society arrived at these conclusions after a couple of world wars that were really driven by the superiority of one ideological concept over another. And these wars, if, as I'm sure you're all aware, make the Thirty Years' War even look like child's play. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, right? Turns out religion wasn't the main source of conflict after all. 
Man can find a reason to kill each other perfectly fine without religion. Point being, the Enlightenment ultimately failed in its promises. It promised to unify the world through science and reason, but it only brought about more turmoil, and that's because reason by itself is not an effective arbiter of truth. And so now we're in this state where society has said the only way we're going to get along is if we just deny that there is such a thing as truth altogether or at least deny its knowability. Let's just say that there is no source of authority, that there is nothing actually to agree on since none of us can really know it anyways, and let's just learn to tolerate each other. In other words, if we're looking to find agreement with each other, our reason alone isn't going to get us there. Even broader society has realized as much. So what are our options? Do we follow the church's or the culture's lead and just decide there isn't such a thing as truth and just bear with our differences? Again, this seems to be the route that many Christians have taken in the past hundred years or so. Just ignore our differences instead of talk about them and just agree to disagree. But this doesn't really seem to be a sustainable option because not only is there undeniably truth, and not only are we compelled to try to live that out on some level, meaning not only is there such a thing as right and wrong, which we, we feel compelled to acknowledge, but even more than this, the Scripture quite clearly commands us to agree in passages like this one with Yodia and Syntyche. Again, disagreements in the body of Christ dishonor the character of Christ. Like Manton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. So quite simply, we don't have the option to just agree to disagree. We have to find a way to agree. So what are our options? And once again, that's where this statement by Paul is so incredibly helpful. Because it shows us the pathway to agreement with this phrase, in the Lord. You see, you and I may not be reliable starting points for truth, both because of our sin and because of our limited range of knowledge. But guess who is a reliable starting point for truth? Guess who doesn't share these same restrictions? The answer is God. And by God, I mean Jesus Christ specifically, who is the very Word of God incarnate, and in whom Paul writes in Colossians 2, 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yes, our reason can be helpful in arranging the data, but it doesn't give us a reliable starting point. You need an A and a B to reason out the C together. And the only person who can provide us with a reliable foundation for truth, the only one who can give us the truth that fills in the edges of the puzzle, so to speak, so we can fill in the middle, basically the only one whose perspective on reality is complete and unaffected by sin, is God. Because God is omniscient, He does know everything. Meaning, He alone can tell us definitively, this is true and this is not true. And since he is holy, since he cannot lie, for instance, he will always present a reliable and undistorted picture of reality. And once we have that, once we have what God has infallibly, infallibly revealed to us, then we have some common ground to work with. 
I remember wrestling with this question when I was leaving seminary and I was trying to decide where I wanted to minister. I knew I wanted to help plant a church, but I also knew that planting a church was incredibly risky business. Church plants are fragile. They don't have the traditions and precedents of a more established church to guide them. Not only is the organization new, but often so are its leaders. And overall, this means that a lot of decisions have to be made for the first time in a church plant. And not only are these decisions going to be difficult, but they're going to be made in the context of a grueling workload. Stress levels are going to be high. And so when I went looking for a church, I wasn't aiming to just get a job. I was trying to interview the churches as much as they were interviewing me. Only the thing I was looking for in a church wasn't whether or not it had a building or how much they could pay me. It wasn't even whether or not our theology aligned. Now, the thing I was looking for more than anything else was, what is their authority? Is the Word of God their authority, or is it something else? Because it didn't matter how much we agreed currently, if we didn't have a common source of authority then conflict was going to be inevitable down the road. And at that point, there was going to be a good chance that the whole thing was going to fall apart. But on the other hand, if the Word of God was their authority, then it didn't really matter at what points we currently disagreed. I had the confidence that we could find agreement in the end because we have the same source of authority. That's what Paul is outlining for us in this passage. The way we're going to find agreement with one another is when we find it in the Lord. He is our common source of authority, the mediator of our disputes, our head. Basically, what Jesus says goes. He's the king. So whoever is accurately representing his interests or in whatever points they're representing his interests, they win. The other person needs to submit. This is the pathway to agreement in the body of Christ. We allow Christ to mediate our disputes. We take directions from our common head. There's another sense in which this direction is helpful in resolving disputes beyond just giving us intellectual common ground. It's helpful as well because it also deals with the spiritual obstacles that prevent us from coming to common understanding. Understand, what we're talking about at this point is how to properly apply the principles that we find in Scripture. After all, it's fine and dandy to say that we should just let Jesus be our authority. But that sort of oversimplifies it, doesn't it? There's a reason why two upstanding women like Yodia and Syntyche are struggling to find agreement. And it's because there's a certain point at which we have to use our judgment as we try to discern the Bible's implications for our lives. It isn't always black and white. There are moments when we're trying to figure out the proper application of several biblical implications at once. At that point, we have to start applying our reason to discern the appropriate application of those principles. And that's a problem because, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we'll often use our reason to justify our desires instead of examine them. Christians aren't immune from that. We can be just as guilty of it as anyone else. We have this predetermined conclusion that we want to arrive at, and so we'll use our reason to jam the Scripture into that conclusion. 
Now, there's more than just one defense against this problem, and we'll address this issue more specifically as we take a look at the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement next week. But what I'd have you note right now is that part of the solution is found in this phrase, in the Lord. We are to agree in the Lord, because what this phrase does is challenge us to consider whether or not our motives are being driven by Christ. This is always the first step to gospel-minded agreement. We must first consider whether or not our conclusions are being driven by sinful desires. Because if we don't do that, then we can shut down the evidence that's presented to us by our brothers and sisters, just the same as the Pharisees did when they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It's like what James tells us in James 4, 1 through 3. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says that our idolatry plays a prominent role in the source of our conflicts. Now, this isn't always the case when we disagree. As I pointed out last week, even when our motives are pure, we're still going to disagree from time to time. It just comes with the territory of being a finite being. But at the same time, it's still a possibility. And so we need to at least consider whether or not our motives are the reason for the disagreement. And this phrase, in the Lord, reminds us with this point. It's by telling Yodia and Syntyche that they must agree in the Lord, Paul reminds them that their priorities need to be shaped by Christ's priorities. And this is a very helpful reminder to us as well to make sure that our idols aren't driving our conclusions. So once again, this is one way that this phrase helps us to find gospel-minded agreement. It shows us the path to unity by removing the spiritual obstacles to unity and by setting us on an intellectual common ground. Very, very helpful in that respect. The second way this phrase helps us is by showing us the limits of gospel-minded agreement. It shows us the limits of gospel-minded agreement. So it not only shows us the pathway or location of gospel-minded agreement, it also shows us its boundaries as well. See, you might start thinking, based off of my, uh, my little introduction this morning, uh, that I'm implying that the Protestant Reformation was wrong. After all, I'm saying that the Reformation was at the root of all these different conflicts in Europe, which claimed so many millions of lives. I'm saying these conflicts then had the unintended consequence of breeding unbelief in the world. From that, it'd be very easy to conclude, to conclude that maybe the Reformers made a mistake. Maybe their interpretation of the Scripture was right, but their application of it was wrong. This is actually the charge that many Catholics continue to lay against Protestants today. They'll point out not only to the, the, the division that occurred in the Reformation, but to the countless divisions that have taken place in Protestantism since then. And they'll say that Protestants are quarrelsome people who do not value the unity of the church. And perhaps there's some merit in that criticism. Perhaps we could do more to preserve the unity of the church. But at least as it relates to Luther, it's simply not true. And that's demonstrated by this phrase, in the Lord. 
we are to agree in the Lord. Once again, this phrase sets the ground rules. It reminds us that Christ is the supreme authority and that His Word settles all disagreements. But not only that, because in establishing Christ as the supreme authority, it also reminds us that we cannot agree with those who disregard His Word. Colossians 1, Paul tells us that Christ is preeminent over all things, including the church, that in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, through the cross. Quite simply, it tells us that Christ is King and that His Word goes. It is the final authority. And this means that we are to be obedient to Him. And if anyone else contradicts His Word, as much as we may wish to be in fellowship with them, we cannot do so, so long as it requires disobedience to Christ. You see this principle applied throughout the New Testament. Acts 4, for instance, when the Jewish authorities order Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus... The answer, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak but what we have seen and heard. And they go right on preaching and even suffer for it. Paul, of course, exhibited the same attitude in all the suffering that he bore for the gospel. Even Jesus told his disciples plainly, he said, Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He said that his message was going to cause division. It wasn't always going to unite. It was even going to separate a son or daughter from their parents, and that was okay. It was to be expected. In fact, you think about God's dealings with man. You think about the gospel at a big picture level, and we see the same principle applied there as well. After all, why does God send His Son into the world, right? Jesus tells us, John 3, 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The, the purpose of Jesus' incarnation and death is reconciliation. God is offering peace to mankind. But will He be at peace with man apart from repentance and faith? And the answer is no. If a man will not repent of his sins and turn to God in faith, acknowledging the truth of his word and submitting to his authority, then God will not be at peace with him. Instead, that man will suffer under the wrath of God for an eternity in hell. So God has made his priorities quite clear. He desires reconciliation. He desires unity, but not at the cost of truth not at the cost of His own glory. And this is the model that we are to follow. We are to seek unity, but not at the cost of truth, not at the cost of our unity with Christ. I like the way J.C. Ryle said it. He once said, Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. That's a very astute way of saying it because... To be united outside of Christ is to be united together against Christ. It is indeed the very unity of hell, and the Bible nowhere advocates for that kind of unity. 
And this is all that Martin Luther was saying. He actually wanted unity. He sought unity. He asked for debate, sought discussions based on the Word of God. But when the Catholic Church said, you must yield to our traditions, you must yield to the authority of the Pope, his answer was, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. He was saying, I have to obey Christ first. That's scriptural. And it provides a model for you to apply in the disagreements that you experience in the church. See, we can pretend to say that we have unity all we want. We can hold hands and say we're one and tolerate one another's differences all we want. And there may be a sense in which we are still unified as Christians. It's like what we saw last week. Paul assumes that Yodi and Syntyche are on the same team, right? He assumes this even in spite of their disagreement. And it's that unity that even makes it so urgent that they agree. But at the same time, this also makes their agreement so urgent. Right? It's the fact that they are one and disagree that makes it so urgent. They're not actually unified. It's a unity in name only. Disagreement is a form of disunity. We can say we're in fellowship with one another, but if we're not united under the authority of the same head, it just isn't true. And this is most especially true when the people we're dealing with obstinately reject the authority of Christ. In that instance, there isn't even a relational kind of unity. I mean, at least Yodi and Syntyche are united to the same head. You can't say that to someone who isn't submitted to Christ. And so in that sense, there's nothing wrong with drawing a line and separating. In that instance, it's even the right thing to do. I like the way Spurgeon puts it as he recounts his decision to separate from the Baptist Union over what he perceived to be foundational compromises to the gospel. He said, It is our solemn conviction that where there can be no real spiritual communion, there can be no pretense of fellowship. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. From everything that we've encountered in Philippians so far, I think that Paul would agree with Spurgeon. Paul was all about unity. I mean, if there is one thing that, he, that, that we should take away from this epistle, it's probably the fact that unity is vital to the health of the gospel. And so Paul treasured unity in the body of Christ. But he didn't do so at the cost of truth. He treasured unity in the body of Christ, but not at the cost of Christ. Unity for the gospel, but certainly not without the gospel. That's all captured in this phrase, in the Lord. Paul wants Yodia and Syntyche to agree, but it's not an agreement at all costs. It's an agreement that's rooted in their relationship with Christ. If either one of them is outside of that relationship, if either one of them is seeking a position that's not consistent with Christ or his gospel, Paul would have no hesitation. They should remain divided. So once again, this is the action we need to take if we're going to find gospel-minded agreement with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must agree in the Lord. Our common ground is found in Christ. And so if we're going to agree with one another, it's by jointly submitting to the authority of Christ. That includes not only cleansing ourselves of our disobedience, it also means not joining other people in theirs. But once again, unfortunately, it's not really as simple as that, is it? It's like I said a moment ago, there's a reason why two upstanding women like Yodia and Syntyche are struggling to find agreement. 
and it's because there's a certain point at which we have to use our judgment to try to discern the Bible's implications for our lives. Once again, it's one thing to say we should agree in the Lord, and this means that we should find our common ground in Christ, and that makes it all seem so neat and tidy, but it isn't neat and tidy, is it? It isn't always black and white. There are moments where we're trying to figure out the proper application of several biblical implications at once, and working through that can be much more difficult. Once again, it's sort of like the outline of a puzzle. The scripture gives us some fantastic starting points that fill in the boundaries. The commands and plain statements of scripture establish all of that for us, but we often have to use our reason to fill in that space in the gray area. And that's where everything starts to break down. This is likely what Yodi and Syntyche are struggling with. Again, it doesn't seem as if they're compromising on any core gospel issue. Paul indicates that they're still on the same team. So what they're likely struggling with is how to navigate that space in the middle. In other words, they both want to be in the Lord, but they can't seem to agree on what that looks like. And I think that's a struggle we can all sympathize with. We've all been sincerely convinced that some doctrine or application from the Scripture is correct, only to encounter brothers or sisters who just are sincerely convinced that, that we're wrong. So what do we do then? What do we do when both sides do some reflection and still come to the conclusion that they sincerely believe that their position reflects Christ's position? There is an answer to that question in this passage, and that's an answer we'll explore next week as we discuss the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. In the meantime, I'd like to close by asking you this question. What's your authority? What's your authority? Or to put it another way, why do you believe the things you do? I'd most especially encourage you to ask this question if you're currently involved in some sharp disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ, perhaps your spouse, for instance. Why do you believe the things you do? Essentially, why do you think you're right? Is it because you're getting your opinion from Christ? Or is there something else that's informing you? If you notice, a lot of times when I give you small group questions, I'll encourage you to substantiate your 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 answers with Scripture. And there's a reason for that. Actually, there's several reasons for that. Well, one reason is because the fact is the world's thinking has infiltrated the church. Again, the world doesn't really have a common source of authority anymore. So it encourages us to act according to our reasons sometimes, our, our reason, our logic sometimes. Other times it tells us to search our feelings and act according to our emotions. Other times it tells us that we can't really know what's right or wrong, so we should just rely on our experience. And this filters its way down into the church. Christians can not only think that truth or even biblical truth is all relative, but very often they'll form their opinions off of all kind of evidence other than the Word of God. So I try to have you substantiate your answer, answers with Scripture to, to challenge you to make sure that the Bible is your source of authority for what you believe, not merely your experience or your feelings. Listen, not even your pastor, right? Sometimes we'll believe something just because our pastor or some other person we respect said it, but unless their convictions are coming from the Bible, they don't really count either. 
Now, again, that doesn't mean that we'll always use Scripture in the right way. Again, we still have to apply our reason to it, and sometimes we'll mess up in the process. But at the very least, I want you to get into the habit of thinking, where are my opinions substantiated by Scripture? Because that is the only truly infallible source of authority. And, of course, it's the only basis for our agreement in Christ. That's actually another reason why I asked this question, by the way, because in group discussions, we're bound to encounter a lot of different opinions, even contradictory opinions. And so the way we can avoid that conflict and all the mess that arises out of that is to simply toss these other sources out before the conflict even begins. I'd encourage you to challenge yourself with that same test. Ask yourself, is God my source of authority? Or is it something else? And I'd encourage you to start in the relationship with those who are closest to you. I know I've been talking big picture today. I mean, we're talking about European history and philosophical worldviews and all that. But don't let that make you lose sight of the fact that the principles that we're talking about today start right here at home. These principles start in the relationships you have with the people in this room, even with the person sitting right next to you. I'm assuming you guys have, have disagreements. After all, it's like I've said, they're really inevitable for finite creatures. Where are you going to resolve those disagreements? Are you turning to God and His Word? Are you turning to Christ to mediate your disputes? Or are you going somewhere else? There's only one sure path to unity, and that's to agree in the Lord. Let's close by praying that God would fill us with such wisdom from His Word that we might learn to agree with one another. Let's pray.